Good morning, and thank you for joining us. It's been a few weeks since I've had the opportunity to teach, and part of that was due to the fact that my wife and I welcomed our fifth child, our fourth daughter, on Easter Sunday. Finley Ireland Riley was born to us at 7.23 p.m., and we are elated, ecstatic, and a bit exhausted. But having a baby later on in our lives, for us, is a lot different experience than we've had as we've had most of our other children in our 20s and our early 30s. But today, we're going to study God's Word together through the book of Genesis, this series known as In the Beginning, Jesus. Today, we're going to tackle something that is so incredibly important in the narrative of God's redemptive plan found in the scriptures and yet so unbelievably misunderstood or not even thought about. It's the idea that God has a covenant with his people. Sometimes we have covenants with people ourselves that are assumed. As a father to my children, I believe that they believe that we will, as their parents, always provide for them, attempt to keep them safe, and love them. And I'll admit that this is part of our covenant with them, written down or not, and what I believe we as parents have committed to before God, since He has entrusted us our children, was that we would be expected that for at least for the first 18, if not longer, years of their life, that we would be developing them to be able to provide for themselves and to keep themselves safe at some point when they are no longer under our roof and our care. Some covenants are treated more like contracts, which are conditional. And as long as both parties continue to meet the expectations that were first put into place before the signing of said covenant or contract. So if you continue to pay your car payment, you get to continue to possess your car. But if you don't pay, then, well, the car goes away. Now, there are many covenants in the Old Testament in particular, which technically is a bit redundant because Another name for the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. And even though the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant are a bit more well-known, this covenant that we're going to study today is with Noah. It is a covenant that is really a promise. And what we will see is that it is unconditional. So with the explanation that a covenant is a promise, let's look at the promise as we study the beginning of chapter 9 of Genesis. So here we go, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. As we heard last week, as Mike unpacked chapter 8 with the actual flood taking place, God then told Noah that never again would God wipe out every living thing with a flood or curse the ground, even though, as God says in verse 21 of chapter 8, that our hearts are inclined to evil. Here's what it says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. God makes a promise to Noah, to his offspring, that he will not flood the earth again. And as we begin chapter 9, verse 1, he now once again blesses Noah and his sons and says, Be fruitful and multiply. Similar to what we studied at the end of chapter 1 in Genesis, where God said in verse 27 and 28, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so to an extent, God seems to be starting over with Noah and his family, and it can be seen that way. But God doesn't make mistakes. We do. We misinterpret things of God, but since he doesn't make mistakes, we have to trust that God had a plan from Adam to Noah. 
to teach us of the redundancy of our sin nature, which we fall back into over and over and over again, and how we constantly break the covenant with God, yet God never backs down from his promises. While we are unfaithful, our God is faithful. And that is one of the most endearing qualities of a God that you and I worship. Verse 2 of chapter 9. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Animals are ultimately under the dominion and authority of mankind. Even though wild beasts could tear us apart, we have the ability to subdue them and put them in cages and tame them. Verse 3. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. God gives us this amazing buffet, if you will, of options to eat, but he does give some instruction on the preparation of the meal. Verse 4, but you must not eat the meat that has its lifeblood still in it. Commentators disagree on what the intent of this verse means. Some believe it to mean that you should not eat pieces of an animal that were cut off from the animal while the animal was still living, which is what some savages in, uh, in later time periods were known for. Others believe it to mean to not eat or drink the blood of animals as this law, which was part of the old covenant, was to persuade people away from ultimately escalating what they were eating and how savage we might become. But look at the next verse. Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of, of another human being. God judges and sees all. And there is an accounting for how we live this life and how we treat others. But our lives are more important than the animals. Sorry, PETA. It's true. And if we are able to take, uh, and if we who are able to do and take a life, we not only have the laws that are in place in our society that we will be held accountable to, but we will give an account to God for how we live this life and how we treat others. The new promise, the new covenant personified in Jesus calls us to something much higher than just our actions. Look at 1 John chapter 3. In verse 15, John says, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them or in him. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, calls out lust as adultery. And John here says that hatred in the heart or intent equals the action. That's difficult for us to hear. But he points out the fact that if we hate who? Another redeemed child of God, a brother or sister in the faith, we do not have love because we have hated someone who God in his grace has adopted into his family like he has with us. And so it's not that if we do this, we then lose the gift of eternal life. What John is pointing out is it's that this is not what a person who has been made a new creation in Christ Jesus is able to do. We are unable to hate our brother or sister if the gospel has truly taken root in our hearts. So we will stand before God and we will give an account. And really the scary part I think is that for all of us, it's that our religion cannot save us. Our doing good cannot save us. Our impeccable theology cannot save us. Only Jesus and his will and his work can make dead sinners like us alive and make us saints 
in him, and it's only through him and by him. Moses continues in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. See, God has a very high view of life, much more than unfortunately many nations, governments, and individuals have. And so this accounting of life means that not only how we live our lives, but, but if we affect or hurt others, we will give an account. God has entrusted us his spirit and his word so that we can care for others and treat others as God would treat them using us. But what does this have to do with a covenant? Well, things had gotten so out of hand, so detestable, so wicked, so without any belief of God's working in society that God brought a flood to wash away the earth. Verse 7, as for you, God says, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it, Noah. God once again commands Noah, his wife, their sons and their wives to be fruitful to increase in number, to fill the earth with mankind created in God's image. And then he goes on in verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God makes this covenant. He essentially a promise that he will not flood the earth again that could be taken two ways. He will not wipe out mankind again, or he may not use a flood in order to do so. But I think it's the former, and here's why. Because we do not live in this covenant anymore by itself, we are given a better covenant, a better promise, a new covenant, and it's Jesus Christ who did what the flood was unable to accomplish. It was, it was done to eradicate sin and the hold that it had on mankind. But spoiler, after the flood, after Noah and his family, family populated the earth, guess what happened? We forgot God's promises again. We forgot God's holiness we forgot God's grace. And God's promises are things that we all need to not only hold on to when times are tough, but remember in our everyday lives to deepen our faith and trust in our God. God's covenant with us today not only includes Noah's promise that he will never flood the earth and wipe out mankind again, but we will have this new covenant, this new promise, a better promise, a more complete and grace-filled promise that makes it so the dead can be made alive that sinners can be made righteous, that the broken can be made whole. So we see this covenant, this promise being made from God to Noah and his descendants. And what I love about this is we get a bird's eye view about what this book is all about. It's not just about the history of Israel, but it's about the promise of God to redeem his people, to give a boat so that life would continue on earth, to bring a flood, to wipe away the sin that infected everyone since birth, a promise to never use the same means to wipe out people again, and the promise that as we continue to read is a foreshadowing of God's grace in his redemptive plan lived out and personified in Jesus. So turn with me, verse 12 of Genesis 9. 
And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. God makes a symbol of remembrance of his covenant with Noah. And all generations to come, it is this, it is a rainbow. Here is Wikipedia's definition of what a rainbow is. A rainbow is a meteorological phenomenon that is caused by reflection, refraction, and dispersion of light in water droplets, resulting in a spectrum of light appearing in the sky. It takes the form of multicolored circular arc. Rainbows caused by sunlight always appear in the section of sky directly opposite the sun. And God uses this meteorological phenomenon to represent and remind everyone that God has made a covenant with mankind. God, the master of the universe, the creator of the heavens and earth, gives a covenant, a promise to his creation. That ought to be mind-blowing to you and I. And that should make us so grateful that every time we see a rainbow in the sky, culture has attempted to make rainbows about things other than God's promise, but it is a symbol of hope. So you're telling me there's a chance. There's an opportunity to be pulled from our state of being an enemy of God, of being from birth deserving of wrath and being made whole, finding rest, peace, shalom that God originally intended for his creation. But it doesn't mean that we try harder. It doesn't mean we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It doesn't mean that we earn this. It is through God's promise and grace that we find our identity in God's redemptive plan personified in his son. So God gives this covenant. He tells Noah of this covenant and Moses writes it down, writes down this covenant so we too can know what the rainbows and the clouds represent. So why give this promise? Why give the symbol? So once again, as we studied last week, that we would remember. We would remember God's promises. We would remember his grace. We would remember his plan and we would remember his son. Something I'm struck by over the past few months is how easily it is to forget what we as a church are about, as a people. But Paul talks about this in many of his letters in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6-7. through 7, Here's what he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 as he begins this chapter, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you in which you've received, in which you've taken your stand. See, we believe that God has purposed us as a community, Church of the Valley, to be about his gospel, his work throughout history to draw people to himself justified by Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection. And we need to be reminded of this, not just on Easter, not just on Sundays, not just once a day, but the gospel is something we ought to know about in our Christian life because it is our Christian life. 
Without the gospel, without Jesus's finished work on the cross and through the empty tomb, we do not have a faith. The church does not exist. And without the gospel, we are still in our sins and ought to be pitied and felt sorry for more than anyone because we believe in some religious myth. That's why we gospelize. That's why we talk about Jesus and not just who he is, not just as a good teacher or a historical figure, but what Jesus has actually done and accomplished. We ought to love Jesus. Not just because if we don't love Jesus, we go to hell, but because if we understand what he did, then our supernatural response is to love him back and hand our lives to him to want to serve him. The early church dealt with people questioning who Jesus was and questioning what he did. There were the Stoics and the Gnostics. Today, we deal with people attempting to replace the gospel of grace with the gospel of nice. And they think that as long as we all get along, then we're good. I don't want any of you to find your justification in anything that you are able to take credit for. Being a good person, being knowledgeable, being nice, being encouraging, or even being talented are terrible saviors because all of them will essentially point back to you and your efforts. I need to be reminded of the gospel daily, moment by moment when I interact with my family, when I write a sermon, when I disciple, counsel, or connect with anyone. I need to be reminded that my value in the kingdom of God is based on God's grace and not my earning. The gospel of Jesus must be central when I do my taxes, when I get my truck washed. The gospel of grace must be where I find my worth and my value and my identity in this world because otherwise this world will eat me alive. I forget. And I work in a church. So brothers and sisters, we must continually remind one another of the importance of Jesus's work on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. The Bible, the word of God, is full of conflict. And let me say something that some of us don't want to believe. The gospel causes conflict. And with the gospel, it's not, can't we all just get along, but praise God that he uses conflict to grow and shape his people to bring him glory. So how can we best reflect Christ if no conflict ever arises? Well, we need to understand that it's going to arise and God grows us in the pain. He doesn't grow us in us avoiding the conflict. To be centered on the gospel, the words of eternal life, the fact is that God enables us to be redeemed through his work, not our own. Then, because of his work, because of the identity that I've now placed in him, then I can be forgiving because I am centered on what I am forgiven from. Then I can look at others as made in God's image rather than an enemy against my opinion. We forget God's promises. And we must do whatever we can to remember them, especially the new covenant that we have been placed in, in Jesus Christ. Verse 17, so God said to Noah, the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. So why give us covenants? Let's start with what we call the old covenant. Why make these covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and the nation of Israel? Well, they all point to the fact that even though mankind is not faithful, God continues to be faithful. We don't ever keep up our end of the bargain. 
We don't ever stay without sin. Even when I attempt not to sin, I sin out of my self-righteousness of feeling like I can refrain. So why can't, I, why can't everyone else be just like me? We continue to fail and God continues to reign. And it is this covenant that God makes with his people that reminds us that even though we sin, God will send his son to take on the flood, to take on sin, to handle the wrath of God against the sin of man so that the son of man can stand in the gap and make us right before God. This gospel message is redunculous, if you will. It is such good news. And I can't believe how much I forget it. Me, the dude who you probably think is always talking about it. I forget just like you do. When I feel slighted, when I feel disrespected, I don't first think about the forgiveness of God that God has gifted me. I think about how I can get back at someone. And then I am no better than the begging servant that was forgiven by the king. So turn with me, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 23, after Peter asked Jesus, how many times should he forgive his brother? Here's what it says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had, had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him and said, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins and he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went on and had the man thrown into prison when he could not pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all of the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Dang. This explanation of the kingdom of God is savage. God don't play no games. As Moises would say. And our forgiveness of others is not natural. It is supernatural. And the covenant that God makes with us, the promise he gives us that we will all have our sins forgiven by the work of his son if we would turn and repent, that's all. It's that salvation is free. And discipleship will cost you your life. But when you truly understand the debt that was paid off for you, when you understand the cost that it took to pay off your sin, forgiving others ought to be accessible. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's what we tend to default to, but it is accessible and it is able for you to realize that we can extend grace because more grace than we'll ever understand was extended to us. We say it a lot, but forgiven people forgive people. And the covenant God makes with us is not based on our ability to pay him back. It is based on his faithfulness to forgive the worst of all sinners like you and I. Jesus, while speaking in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, speaking about oaths and swearing by something, points out that we shouldn't make oaths or promises because we tend to not keep them. 
And we make the thing we swear by out to be a liar. So instead, here's what he says. Matthew 5, verse 36 through 37, And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply, yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Keep your, yes, keep your yes, yeses and your noes, noes. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't give an answer to make someone happy and walk away from your commitment because it gets hard. It's in the pain that growth tends to be produced, not the running away from the commitments because they get hard. Jesus speaks this point after covering marriage and divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. Because marriage is a reflection of the gospel. Because there is a commitment in your marriage that is about God's gifting you marriage, not your ability to earn the gift or how well you keep up your end of the commitment. When one gets married, they are committing to the Lord by committing to one another, not that their salvation comes by their marriage, but it is a reflection of their commitment to Christ when we are committed in our marriage. So here's my question, Church of the Valley. Are you committed to him? Like, are you really committed to deal with the difficulties and commitments that come with being God's child? Are you in? Are you willing and able to be committed to him and his placing you in his family, in the church, when the church isn't all that you wished it was because sinners be sitting in the pews with us? And we're included in that. Are you in when it feels as if the decisions are made without you in a church that maybe you give your hard-earned money to? Are you in when Jesus calls you to hate your father and your mother and even your own life in comparison to how much you ought to love and want to follow Jesus? Are you in when the teaching of the Bible contradicts how you want to see God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and his church, and your purpose in this life? God's promise to not send a flood and destroy mankind again was a grace. But the biggest grace was that God in his foreknowledge knew that even after the flood, Noah and his family would produce sinful offspring like before. And God would send a flood of wrath, not onto you and I, but onto Jesus as he hung on the cross. The past 13 months have created isolation, disunity amongst many of the relationships that most of us have. Some worry about the safety of they and their household. Some wonder why others care so much about safety. Some have been hiding. Some have been hiding for safety's sake, or at least that's what they tell themselves, and have not had other people see into their lives and really haven't been themselves for at least 13 months. Some feel as if the world as we know it will never be the same. But here is what I know that is true. The gates of Hades will not stand against Jesus and his church. And you know who his church is? It's us, I think. But here's my question. Are we committed to be the people who proclaim that Jesus is the Christ? And on that rock, on that confession, Jesus builds his church and the powers and demons have no ability to overcome the truth of the gospel and the power of God's church representing Christ on this earth. Church, in the past few months, my wife and I have lost her uncle. I've been talked about behind my back. I've seen friendships implode because of expectations that were not met and were not communicated. I've felt mistrusted. I've felt beat up. And even though I stand here somewhat physically healthy, I want to admit that emotionally I ought to be laying in a hospital bed somewhere. I got to let you know that there are moments that all I want to do is run away. That's all I want to do. 
I want to leave. I want to run. I want to hide. I want to yell. I want to scream. But God, but God drew me. I didn't decide myself to become a Christian or a pastor or a ministry leader during a pandemic. Earlier this year, we made the point that the direction of this church is to recalibrate our emphasis of the redemptive plan of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We want to make sure that everything we do is about the gospel because we forget. We get our hearts hardened to it. We emphasize things that are not the redemptive plan of God. And I have had people be offended while I preached because they thought I was calling them out, speaking about them, when as far as I know, I was not at all attempting to call someone out here individually. But as the pastor and lead teacher of this church, my responsibility is to preach truth, to correct false teaching, to announce hope found in Jesus, and to defend the truth of the gospel at all costs. And sometimes the cost is loss of friendships, the loss of trust, the loss of security, comfort, being understood, the loss of control. And I trust that God in his word written by his spirit knew that in this season of life, it was going to be hard. This pandemic has been hard, but God often has to strip down or wash away the things that impede and distract from loving him more than anything in this world. Don't get that twisted. In John chapter 6, verses 53 through 69, I'm going to read a bit. We see Jesus. We see Jesus speaking to a bunch of disciples that have been following him. And this passage gave me such encouragement this week in a very, very difficult week. Here's, here's what it says in the word of God. John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man Ascend to where he was before. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the father enables them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Listen, I need you to hear what I'm about to say. I don't think Church of the Valley is the best church ever or around. There are plenty of good churches in the area that preach the gospel and have far better amenities than we do or will ever have. 
But what we attempt to do no matter what is preach the words of eternal life. Because we don't believe that anything else will matter in eternity. Not your theology on social justice, not your defense or offense for or against women in ministry, not an altar in the worship center or democracy of a church vote. The only thing that we major in is the gospel, the good news of grace personified in Jesus Christ. And if that isn't enough, or that isn't what you want the church that you're committed to to focus on, no hard feelings. But we're not going to deviate from that. Because God didn't call us to be a place that focuses on secondary issues. We focus on proclaiming the words of eternal life in our children's ministry, to our preaching, in our playlist, to our community groups, in our discipleship relationships, to our connections with people outside of the church. We don't get brownie points for just saying the gospel out loud. We demonstrate our eternal life by living as the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Church, I want you to see God get glory through our gathering, through our preaching, through our serving, and through our relationships with him and one another, but it isn't easy. In fact, it's really hard to be part of a family of believers where the thing that makes us the most connected isn't our shared hobbies or interests. It's the shared calling from God, a drawing rather from God, to go from death to life to be grafted into God's family. And there are no takebacks. There is only commitment. And I challenge some of us that it's in the pain that God produces growth, not in our comfortable dodging of difficulties. So church, let's begin with some questions. Are you in? Are you in with the guy who says, eat my body and drink my blood? Are you in with being included in God's church? any church that preaches the gospel, even if they don't emphasize what you want them to emphasize most? And are you in at Church of the Valley? If you believe you are part of this community, then be part of this community. Let's not play church. Let's be the church. Let's point people to Christ together. Let's cry together in our pain. Let's celebrate together in the growth of people, not the amount of butts and seats. My family and I bounced around from church to church, not because we couldn't find things that we loved about the church that we were at. We did. But we all felt as if something was missing. Something wasn't right. And possibly, in my pride, we thought that if something was missing in the Bay Area, that there could be a church in Santa Clara that emphasized the gospel unashamedly. So this crazy idea of leading at COV started to unravel before our very eyes. And here we are close to four years later at Church of the Valley, and it hasn't been a cakewalk, nor was it ever promised to be, nor should it be. And I believed when I started here that I would be here as the lead pastor for 30 years. And that was the covenant that I made with God and with you, that those who are in here at COV, because I believed that the longevity of doing ministry in the same place is one of the best ways we can have a larger eternal impact for the glory of God in Santa Clara County and Santa Clara City. So church, I want to call us to commitment. I want to call us to action. I want to call us to Christ and his lordship. Church, are you in Do you trust the elders and the staff to point you to Christ? Do you trust that the money that you give to God through COV is used to make much of Jesus and to proclaim the gospel? If you're in, 
engage like you never have before, Church of the Valley. I believe that as this pandemic becomes less and less dramatic in our everyday lives, an opportunity for what some would call a revival may take place. If people would humbly pray and commit to God that they claim that they love, there is no one size fits all for being in. It's going to look different for someone in their 50s compared to someone in their 20s, depending on their life stage, their spiritual maturity, and their responsibilities. But what I'm asking is that would you make a commitment based on what it looks like for you? Let me give you some recommendations based on where we're all at. Do not isolate. First and foremost, you do not have to be at everything the church offers, but you should be at some of what the church offers. We are in this weird season where we're attempting to meet in person every week while being safe and also offering playlists so that those who are not yet ready to meet in person for safety's sake or because they have small children at home or have issues getting to the church gathering can still have an opportunity to worship in teaching and in song. But maybe your next step is to attempt to join us on a Sunday and see what it's like. I promise you it's safer than the grocery store. And we are all very respectful with masks and social distancing. Maybe you haven't been on the takeaway call in a very long time because you're sick of Zoom or because you don't really feel comfortable being called on to share a takeaway. It's okay if you join the call to pass on sharing the takeaway. Just know that. We'd love to just see you and have you hear what others have heard. And I bet you'll gain a new takeaway from hearing what's stirred in others as they share. Maybe you haven't given financially in quite a while or ever. Because maybe you don't feel like we're doing real church yet. Well, I want to encourage you that giving is not about the church. It's about the worship from your heart to God. And so partnering in his work of the gospel transformation at COV is what we encourage you to do, not give out of guilt or assumption that it buys you anything. Maybe you haven't been in any type of community group for quite a while. We want to encourage you to do so. Currently, we have a community group that Karen and I are leading on conflict in the church and, and reconciling relationships. And it's going to go for a few more weeks. It's a great time. If you want to join us, sign up. You missed one week so far. And we'll get you some info so you can catch up. And starting in May, there will be some other options, and especially one that will be given so many COVers have the opportunity to connect with one another and be in God's Word together. Here's another way you can be in. Find someone in the church that you can spend time with. Open the Bible with them and pray. That's a really basic, bare bones example of discipleship. Maybe you want to be discipled. Maybe you want to invest in someone else. Those who want to grow ought to want to be around others who can be part of that process with them. And what is so great is it is those as they invest in others, they also get to grow from the experience. Lastly, we hope to be bringing children's ministry back on Sundays in the next few months, if not sooner. We want to have more opportunities for worship expression. We want to have more opportunities for our youth and children to connect with God and with one another. And so we're going to need more people to serve in different ministries than we have ever before. So I'm going to ask you to reach out to us as leadership. And here's what I ask you to do. If you are thinking you want to do any of the things I just mentioned as steps on how to be more in and you don't know how to get started, I'm going to ask you to email Robin Tillman. We'll put her email up. She is our office manager and is also helping Aaron Riley with children's ministry as we find the new normal in our home with a newborn at the Riley's home. 
I want you to email her and ask, hey, I'm interested in serving in this type of ministry. What do I do? Or maybe I'd like to be discipled, but I don't know who to disciple me. Or maybe I want to invest in someone else, but I don't know who needs it. And I don't know how to get started, and so I'm emailing. I'd like you to email her. Share what you are interested in, and she'll take people's questions and get them to me and others in leadership so we can help you. If you email me or text me directly, I may forget. Because the gospel isn't the only thing I forget. But if you send it to her, she'll get them all together and we as a staff can hopefully get people more involved. Church, it is great to be God's children. It is great to be adopted into God's family. It is great to be committed to God and to one another in this covenant that is known as Jesus. And it's not going to be easy, but I trust that if we commit more and more to Christ and what he is teaching us, we as a church family will collectively look more and more like him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the opportunity to teach on covenants today. And I thank you for the covenant that you've made with your people, and I thank you that by your grace alone, many of us are adopted into that family. Father, I ask that for whoever decides to give online or mailing anything to the church, Lord, that that offering that they give would be given out of worship and a, and a want to see your kingdom expand. And God, I pray that you would use that money to make disciples of all nations and generations. And God, I also just pray for us as a community that we would be in. We'd be in when it comes to you, God. We'd be in when it comes to being grafted into your family and a part of your church. And I pray that this commitment that you would bless and you would use for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.